Section 10 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland Volume 1 From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825 By Shimon Dubunov Translated by Israel Friedlander This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea Chapter 5 The Autonomous Center in Poland During Its Decline 1648 to 1772. Part 2. 3. The Russian and Swedish invasions, 1654 to 1658. The alliance of their enemies, the Cossacks with the rulers of Muscovy, a country which had always felt a superstitious dread of the people of other lands and religions, was fraught with untold misery for the Jews. It was now the turn of the inhabitants of White Russia and Lithuania to face the hordes of southern and northern Scythians who invaded the regions hitherto spared by them, devastating them uninterruptedly for two years, 1654 to 1656. The capture of the principal Polish cities by the combined hosts of the Muscovites and Cossacks were accompanied by the extermination or expulsion of the Jews. When Mogilev on the Dnieper surrendered to Russian arms, Tsar Alexis Mikhailovich complied with the request of the local Russian inhabitants and gave orders to expel the Jews and divide their houses between the magistracies and the Russian authorities. 1654. The Jews, however, who were hoping for a speedy termination of hostilities, failed to leave the city at once and had to pay severely for it. Towards the end of the summer of 1655, the commander of the Russian garrison in Mogilev, Colonel Poklonsky, learned of the approach of a Polish army under the command of Rezuil. Prompted by the fear that the Jewish residents might join the approaching enemy, Poklonsky ordered the Jews to leave the boundaries of the city and on the ground of their being Polish subjects, promised to have them transported to the camp of Rezuil. Scarcely had the Jews, accompanied by their wives and children, and carrying with them their property, left the town behind them, when the Russian soldiers, at the command of the same Poklonsky, fell upon them and killed nearly all of them, plundering their property at the same time. In Vitebsk, the Jews took an active part in defending the town against the besieging Russian army. They dug trenches around the fortified castle, strengthened the walls, supplied the soldiers with arms, power, and horses, and acted as scouts. When the city was finally taken by the Russians, the Jews were completely robbed by the Zaporozhian Cossacks, while many of them were taken captive forcibly baptized or exiled to Puskov, Novgorod, and Kazan. The Jews suffered no less heavily from the riot which took place in Vilna, the capital of Lithuania, after its occupation by the combined army of Muscovites and Cossacks in August 1655. A large part of the Vilna community fled for its life. Those who remained behind were either killed or banished, from the town at the command of Tsar Alexis Mikhailovich, who was anxious to comply with the request of the local Russian townspeople 
to rid them of their Jewish competitors. Shortly thereafter, a similar fate overtook the central Polish provinces on the Vistula and the San River, which had hitherto been spared the horrors of Cossacks and Muscovites. The invasion of Sweden, the third enemy of Poland, 1655-1658, carried bloodshed into the very heart of the country. The Swedish king, Charles Gustav, reduced one city after the other, both the old and the new capital, Krakow and Warsaw, speedily surrendering to him. A large part of Great and Little Poland fell into the hands of the Swedes, and the Polish king, John Casimir, was compelled to flee to Silesia. The easy victories of the Swedes were the result of the anarchy and political demoralization, which had taken deep root in Poland. It was the treachery of the former Polish sub-chancellor, Lajewski, that brought the Swedes into Poland, and the cowardice of Szlachta hastily surrendered the cities of Posen, Kalish, Krakow, and Vilna to the enemy. Moreover, the Swedes were welcomed by the Polish Protestants and Calvinists, who looked for their rescue to the northern Protestant power in the same way in which the Cossacks expected their salvation from Orthodox Russia. The Jews were the only ones who had no political advantage in betraying their country, and their friendly attitude towards the Swedes no more than corresponded to the conduct of the Swedes towards them. At any rate, their patriotism was no more open to suspicion than that of the Poles themselves, who joined the power of Sweden to get rid of the yoke of Muscovy. Nevertheless, the Jews had to pay a terrible price for this lack of patriotism. They found themselves, in the words of contemporary chronicler, in the position of a man who fled from a lion and is met by a bear. The Jews, who had been spared by the Swedes, were now annihilated by the patriotic Poles, who charged them with disloyalty. The bands of Polish irregulars, which had been organized in 1656 under the command of General Charnetsky to save the country from the invader, vented their fury upon the Jews in all the localities which they wrested from the Swedes. The massacre of Jews began in Great and Little Poland, without yielding in point of barbarism to the butcheries which eight years previously had been perpetuated in the Ukraine. The Polish host of Charnetsky had learned from the Cossacks the art of exterminating the Jews. Nearly all the Jewish communities in the province of Posen, excepting the city of Posen, and those in the provinces of Kalish, Krakow, and Piotrkov, were destroyed by the saviors of Polish fatherland. The brutal and wicked Charnetsky to use the epithets applied to him by the Jewish analysts, or to be more exact, the Polish mob marching behind him, committed atrocities which were truly worthy of the Cossacks. They tortured and murdered the rabbis, violated the women, killed the Jews by the hundreds, sparing only those who were willing to become Catholics. These atrocities were as a rule committed in the wake of the retreating Swedes, who had behaved like human beings towards the Jewish population. 
The humanness shown by the Swedes to the Jews was avenged by the inhumanity of the Poles. While the bands of Czarnetsky were attacking the Jews in western Poland, the Moscovites and Cossacks continued to disport themselves in the eastern districts and in Lithuania. Not until 1658 did the horrors of warfare begin gradually to subside, and only after terrible losses and humiliating concessions to Russia and Sweden was Poland able to restore its political order, which had been shaken to its foundation during the preceding years. The losses inflicted upon the Jews of Poland during the fatal decades of 1648 to 1658 were appalling. In the reports of the chronicler, the number of Jewish victims varies between 100,000 and 500,000. But even if we accept the lower figure, the number of victims still remains colossal, excelling the catastrophes of the Crusades and the Black Death in Western Europe. Some 700 Jewish communities in Poland had suffered massacre and pillage. In the Ukrainian cities situated on the left banks of the Dnieper, the region populated by Cossacks, in the present government of Chernigov, Poltava, and part of Kiev, the Jewish communities had disappeared almost completely. In the localities on the right shore of the Dnieper or in the Polish part of the Ukraine, as well as in those of Volhynia and Podolia, wherever the Cossacks had made their appearance, only about one-tenth of the Jewish population survived. The others had either perished during the rebellion of Khmelnytsky or had been carried off by the Tatars into Turkey, or had emigrated to Lithuania, the central provinces of Poland, or the countries of Western Europe. All over Europe and Asia, Jewish refugees or prisoners of war could be met with, who had fled from Poland, or had been carried off by the Tatars and ransomed by their brethren. Everywhere the wanderers told the terrible tale of the woes of their compatriots and of the martyrdom of hundreds of Jewish communities. An echo of all these horrors resounds in contemporary chronicles and mournful synagogue liturgies. One of the eyewitnesses of the Ukrainian massacres, Nathan Hanova, from Zaslav, gives a striking description of it in his historical chronicle Yeben Metzla, 1653. Sabatai Cohen, the famous scholar of Vilna, brought this catastrophe to the notice of the Jewish world through a circular letter entitled Megillat Efa, which was accompanied by prayers in memory of the Polish martyrs. In heart-rending liturgies, many contemporary rabbis and writers, such as Lipman Heller, rabbi of Krakow, Sheptel Horowitz, Rabbi of Posen, the scholars Meyer of Szczebreshin, Zoka Litim, 1650, and Gabriel Schusberg, Peta Tesuba, 1653, laments the destruction of Polish Jewry. All these writings are pervaded with the bitter consciousness that Polish Jewry would never recuperate from the blows it had received and that the peaceful nest in which 
the persecuted nation had found a refuge was destroyed forever. 4. The Restoration, 1658-1697 Fortunately, these apprehensions proved to be exaggerated. Though decimated and impoverished, the Jewish population of Poland exceeded in numbers the Jewish settlement of Western Europe. The chief center of Judaism remained in Poland as theretofore, though it became the center of a more circumscribed and secluded section of Jewry. The extraordinary vitality of the eternal people was again demonstrated by the fact that the Polish Jews were able, in a comparatively short time, to recover from their terrible losses. No sooner had taken peace been restored in Poland then they began to return to their demolished nests and to re-establish their economic position and communal self-government, which had been so violently shaken. King John Casimir, having resumed the reins of government, declared that it was his inmost desire to compensate his Jewish subject, though it be only in part, for the suffering inflicted upon them and to assist them in recuperating from material ruin. This declaration the king made in the form of a charter bestowing the right of free commerce upon the Jews of Krakow, 1661. Various privileges as well as temporary alleviations in the payment of taxes were conferred by him upon numerous other Jewish communities which had suffered most from the horrors of the Cossacks and the invasions of the Russians and Swedes. It goes without saying that all this could only soften the consequences of the terrible economic crisis, but could not avert them. The crisis left its sad impress particularly upon the South, which had been the scene of the Cossack rebellion. As far as the Ukraine was concerned, peace was not completely restored for a long time. By the Treaty of Andrusovo of 1667, Poland and Muscovy divided the province between them. The portion situated on the right bank of the Dnieper, Molinia and Podolia, remained with Poland, while the section on the left bank of the same river, called Little Russia, the region of Poltava, Chernigov, and part of the district of Kiev, including the city of the same name, was ceded to Muscovy. However, in consequence of the party dissensions, which divided the ranks of the Cossacks and made their various hetmans gravitated now towards the one, now towards the other of the sovereign powers, the Ukraine continued for a long time to be an apple of discord between Poland, Russia, and Turkey. This agitation handicapped alike the agricultural pursuits of the peasants and commercial activities of the Jews. In Little Russia, the Jews had almost disappeared, while in the Polish Ukraine, they had become greatly impoverished. The southwestern region, where the Jews had once upon a time lived so comfortably, sank economically low and lower, and gradually yielded its supremacy to the northwest, to Lithuania and White Russia, which had suffered comparatively little during the years of unrest. The transfer of the cultural center of Judaism from the south to the north forms 
one of the characteristic features of the period. Michael Wisniewski, 1669-1673, who was elected king after John Casimir, extended his protection to the Jews by virtue of family traditions, being a son of the hero Jeremiah Wisniewski, who had saved many a Jewish community of the Ukraine during the sinister years of the Cossack mutiny. At the coronation diet, Wisniewski ratified the fundamental privileges of the Polish and Lithuanian Jews. As far as these privileges are not in contradiction with the general laws and customs, this ratification had been obtained through application of the general syndic of the Jews, Moses Markovich, who evidently acted as the spokesman of all the kahals of the ancient provinces of Poland. The benevolent intentions of the king were counteracted by the diets, which controlled by the clergy and shlakta, issued restrictive laws against the Jews. The Diet of Warsaw, held in 1670, not only limited financial operations of the Jewish capitalists by fixing a maximum rate of interest, 20%. This would have been perfectly legitimate, but also thought it necessary to restore the old canonical regulations forbidding the Jews to keep Christian domestics or to leave their houses during the church processions. In these diet regulations, particularly in their tone and motivation, in order that the perfidy and self-will of the Jews should not gain the upper hand, etc., one cannot fail to perceive the venom of the Catholic clergy which once more engaged in its old meteor of slandering the Jews, charging them with hostility to the Christian and with the desecration of church sacraments. The influence of these church fanatics upon the Polish schools, coupled with the general deterioration of morals as a result of the protected wars, was responsible for the recrudescence during that period of the ugly street attacks upon the Jews by the students of the Christian colleges, the so-called Schiller-Geloif. These scholastic excesses now became an everyday occurrence in the cities of Poland. The righteous scholars not only caused public scandals by insulting Jewish passers-by on the street, but frequently invaded the Jewish quarters where they instituted regular pogroms. Most of these disorders were engineered by the pupils of the Academy of Krakow and the Jesuit schools in Posen, Lemberg, Vilna, and Brest. The local authorities were passive onlookers of these savage pranks of the future citizens of Poland, which occasionally assumed very dangerous form. In order to protect themselves from such attacks, many Jewish communities paid an annual tax to the rectors of the local Catholic schools, and this tax, which was called Kosbales, was officially recognized by the common law then in use. However, even the ransom agreed upon could not save the Jews of Lemberg from a bloody pogrom. The pupils of the cathedral school and the Jesuit academy of that city were preparing to storm the Jewish quarter. Having learned of the intentions of the rioters, the Jewish youth of Lemberg 
organized an armed self-defense and courageously awaited the enemy. But the attack of the Christian students, who were assisted by the mob, was so furious that the Jewish guard was unable to hold its own. The resistance of the Jews only resulted in exacerbating the rioters, and the disorders took the form of a massacre. About a hundred Jewish dead, a large number of demolished houses, several desecrated synagogues were the result of barbarous amusement of the disciples of the militant church. 1664. Of the medieval trials of that period, two cases, one in Lithuania and the other in the Crown, stand out with particular prominence. The former took place in the little town of Luzani, in the province of Grodno, in 1657. The local Christians, who on their Easter festival had placed the dead child body in the yard of a Jew, thereupon charged the whole community with having committed a ritual murder. The trial lasted nearly three years and ended in the execution of two representatives of the Jewish community, Rabbi Israel and Rabbi Tobias. A dirge commemorating this event, composed by a son of one of the martyrs, contains a heart-rending description of the tragedy. My enemies have arisen against me and have spread their nets in the shape of a false accusation in order to destroy my possessions. They took dead bodies, slashed them, and spoke with furious cunning. Behold, the ill-fated Jews drink and suck the blood of the murdered and feed on the children of the Gentiles. Three years did the horrible slander last, and we thought our liberation was near, but alas, terrible darkness had engulfed us. Our sworn enemies dragged us before their hostile court. The evildoers assembled in the week before the new year and turned justice into warm wood. A wily and wicked Gentile, judged only by the sight of his eyes, without witnesses, he judged innocent and sinless people in order to shed pure blood. The horde of evildoers pronounced a perverted verdict, saying, Choose ye for execution two Jews, such as may please you. A beautiful pair fell into their nets. Rabbi Israel and Rabbi Tobias, the holy ones, were singled out from among the community. These men saw the glittering blade of the sword, but no fear fell upon them. They clasped each other's hands and swore to share the same fate. Let us take courage, and let us prepare with a light heart to sacrifice ourselves. Let us become the lambs for the slaughter. We shall surely find protection under the wings of God. On the sixth day, these holy men were led out to execution, and an altar was erected. The wrath of the Lord burst forth in the year of recompense on the festival of commemoration, New Year. The bitterness of death was awaiting the martyrs in the midst of the marketplace. They confessed their sins, saying, We have sinned before the Lord. Let us sanctify his name like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They turned to the executioner, saying, Grant us one hour of respite, that we may render praise unto the Lord. The lips of the impure, 
the false lips of those who pursue the wind and worship corrupt images came to tempt them with strange beliefs but the holy man exclaimed away ye impure shall we renounce the living god and wander after trees the holy rabbi israel stretched forth his neck and shouted with all his might hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one thereupon the executioner stretched forth his hand to take the sword and the costly vessel was shattered when the holy rabbi tobias saw this loss he exclaimed blessed art thou o rabbi israel who had passed the first into the realm of light i followed thee he too exclaimed hear o israel who art guarded by god like the apple of the eye and he went forth to die in the name of the lord and the executioner slew him as he had slain the first another tragedy took place in krakow in 1663 the educated jewish apothecary matatia kalahora a native of italy who had settled in krakow committed the blunder of arguing with a local priest a member of the dominican order about religious topics the priest invited Kalahora to a disputation in the cloister, but the Jew declined, promising to expound his views in writing. A few days later, the priest found on his chair in the church a statement written in German and containing a violent arraignment of the cult of the Immaculate Virgin. It is not impossible that the statement was composed and placed in the church by an adherent of the Reformation or the Arian heresy, both of which were then the object of persecution in Poland. However, the Dominican decided that Calahora was the author and brought the charge of blasphemy against him. The court of royal castle cross-examined the defendant under torture without being able to obtain a confession. Witnesses testified that Calahora was not even able to write German. Being a native of Italy, he used the Italian language in his conversations with the Dominican. In spite of all this evidence, the unfortunate Calahora was sentenced to be burned at the stake. The alarmed Jewish community raised a protest, and the case was accordingly transferred to the highest court in Piotrkov. The accused was sent in chains to Piotrkov together with the plaintiff and the witnesses. But the Arch-Catholic Tribunal confirmed the verdict of the law court, ordering that the sentence be executed in the following barbarous sequence. First, the lips of the blasphemers to be cut off. Next, his hand that held the fateful statement to be burned. Then the tongue, which had spoken against the Christian religion to be excised. Finally, the body to be burned at the stake and the ashes of the victim to be loaded into a cannon and discharged into the air. This cannibal ceremonial was faithfully carried out on December 13, 1663, on the marketplace of Piotrkov. For two centuries, the Jews of Krakow followed the custom of reciting on the 14th of Kislev in the old synagogue of that city, a memorial prayer for the soul of the martyr Kalahora. There is evidently some connection between this event and the epistle sent by the general of the Dominican order in Rome, Marini, to the head of the order in Krakow, 
dated February 9, 1664. Marini states that the unfortunate Jews of Poland had complained to him about the wicked slanders and accusations, the sole purpose of which was to influence the Diet soon to assemble at Warsaw and demonstrate to it that the Polish people hate the Jews unconditionally. He requests his colleagues in Krakow and the latter's subordinates to defend the hapless people against every calumny invented against them. Subsequent history shows that the epistle was sent in vain. The last Polish king who extended efficient protection to the Jews against the classes and parties hostile to them was John III Sobieski, 1674 to 1696, who, by his military exploits, succeeded in restoring the political prestige of Poland. This king had frequent occasion to fight the growing anti-Semitic tendencies of the Shlakta, the municipalities and the clergy. He granted safe conducts to various Jewish communities, protecting their liberties and privileges, enlarged their spheres of self-government and freed them from the jurisdiction of the local municipal authorities. In 1682, he complied with the request of the Jews of Villa, who begged to be released from the municipal census. The application was prompted by the fact that a year previously they had been induced by magistracy of Vilna who assured them of complete safety to go outside the town where the census of the Jews and Christian trade unions was taken. But no sooner had the Jews left the confines of the city than the members of the trade unions and other Christian inhabitants of Villa began to shoot at them and rob them of their clothes and valuables. The Jews would have been entirely annihilated had not the pupils of the local Jesuit college taken pity on them and rescued them from the fury of the mob. While the riot was in progress, the magistracy of Vilna not only failed to defend the Jews, but even looked on at the proceedings with great satisfaction. It is necessary to point out that such manifestation of humaneness on the part of the Polish college youth was a rare phenomenon indeed. As a rule, the students themselves were the initiators of the tumults or disorders in the Jewish quarter, and the scholastic riots referred to previously did not cease even under John Sobieski. The pupil of the Catholic Academy in Krakow made an attack upon the Jews because of their refusal to pay so-called cosbales, the scholastic tax which had been agreed upon between the Jews and Christian colleges, 1681 to 1682. In 1687, the tumultuous scholars, this time in Posen, were joined by the street mob, and for three consecutive days, the Jews had to defend themselves against the rioters with weapons in their hands. The national Polish diets condemned this form of violence, and in their constitutions, guaranteed to the Jews inviolability of person and property particularly when they found it necessary to raise the head tax or impose special levies upon the Jews. In reality, the only defender of the Jews was the king. At his court appeared general syndics or spokesmen of the Jewish communities and presented various applications which 
John Sobieski was ready to grant as far as lay in his power. This humane attitude toward the infidels was on more than one occasion held up against him at the sessions of the Senates and the Diets. At the Diets held in Grodno in 1693, the enemies of the court brought charges against the Jew Bezalel, a favorite of the king and a royal tax farmer, accusing him of desecrating the Christian religion, embezzling state funds, and other crimes. After passionate debates, John Sobieski insisted that Bezalel to be allowed to clear himself by oath of the charge of blasphemy, while the other accusations were disposed of by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. During the reign of John Sobieski, Polish Jewry fully recuperated from the terrible ravages of the previous epoch. Under his successors, its position became more and more unfavorable. 5. Social and political dissolution. The process of disintegration which had seized the feudal and clerical structure of the Polish body politic assumed appalling proportions under the kings of the Saxon dynasty, Augustus II and Augustus III, 1697 to 1763. The political anarchy, which coupled with the failures in the Swedish war at the beginning of the 18th century, surrendered Poland into the hands of rejuvenated Russia under Peter the Great, was only the external manifestation of the inner decay of the country, springing from its social order, which was founded on the arbitrariness of the higher and the servitude of the lower estates. In a land in which every class had regarded only for its own selfish interest, in which the diets could be broken up by the whim of a single deputy, the so-called liberum veto, the government did not concern itself with the common will, but pursued its narrow bureaucratic interests. In these circumstances, the Jews, being oppressed by all the Polish estates, were gradually deprived of their principal support, the authority of the king, which had formerly exercised a moderate influence upon the antagonism of the classes. True, at the coronation diets of Augustus II and Augustus III, the old Jewish privileges were officially ratified, but in consequence of the prevailing chaos and disorder, the rights confirmed in this manner remained a scrap of paper. Limited as these rights were, their execution depended on the constant watchfulness of the supreme powers of the state and on their readiness to defend these rights against the encroachments of hostile elements. As a matter of fact, the heedless Saxon kings, being neglectful of the general interest of the country, had no special reason to pay attention to the interest of the Jews. The only concern of the government was the regular collection of the head tax from the Kahals. This question of taxation was discussed with considerable zeal at the Pacific Diet of 1717, which had been convened in Warsaw for the purpose of restoring law and order in the country, solely shaken by the protracted war with the Swedish king Charles XII and the inner anarchy accompanying it. Despite the fact that the Jews had been practically ruined during that period of unrest, 
the amount of the head tax was considerably increased. The local representatives of the government, the voyevodas and starostas, whose function was to defend the Jews, frequently became the most relentless oppressors of the people under their charge. These provincial satraps looked upon the Jewish population merely as the object of unscrupulous extortion. Whenever in need of money, the starostas resorted to a simple contrivance to fill their pockets. They demanded a fixed sum from the local kahal and threatened, in case of refusal, imprisonment and other forms of violence. All they had to do was to send to jail some members of the Jewish community, preferably a kahal elder or an influential representative, and the kahal was sure to pay the demanded sum. Occasionally, this well-calculated exploitation was relieved by the aimless mockery of these despots, who were unable to restrain their savage instincts. Thus, the starosta of Kaniev, in the Polish Ukraine, desiring to compensate a neighboring landowner for the murder of his Jewish arrender, gave orders to load a number of Jews upon a wagon, who were thereupon carried to the gates of his injured neighbor and thrown down there like so many bags of potatoes. The same starosta allowed himself the following entertainment. He would order Jewish women to climb an apple tree and call like cuckoos. He would next bombard them with small shot and watch the unfortunate women fall wounded from the tree, whereupon, laughing merrily, he would draw all the coins among them. The most powerful estate in the country, the liberty-loving, or more correctly, license-loving Schlachter, protected the Jews only when in need of their services. Claiming for himself, in his capacity as slaveholder, the toil of his peasants, the pan laid equal claim to the toll of the Jewish businessman and render who turned the rural product of his master and the right of propination or liquor selling into sources of income for the latter. At one time, the Polish landowners even made the attempt to enslave the Jews on their estates by legal proceedings. At the Diet of 1740, the deputies of the nobility brought in a resolution that the Jews living on Schlachter estates be recognized as the hereditary subject of the owners of those estates. This monstrous attempt at transforming the rural Jews into serfs was rejected solely because the government refused to forego the income from Jewish taxation, which in this case would flow into the pockets of the landowners. Nevertheless, the rural Jews was to all intents and purposes the serf of his pan. The latter exercised full jurisdiction over his Jewish arrender and factor, as well as over the residents on his estates in general. During the savage inroads, frequent during this period, of one pan upon the estate of another, the Jewish arrenders were the principal sufferers. The meetings of the local diets were dietines, and the conferences of the Schlachta or the sessions of the court's tribunals became fixed occasion for attacking the local Jews, for invading their synagogues and houses, and engaging by way of amusement in all kinds of excesses. The Diet of 1717 
held in Warsaw, protested against these wild orgies and threatened the rioters and the violators of public safety with severe fines. The custom nevertheless remained in vogue. As far as the cities are concerned, the Jews were engulfed in endless litigation with the Christian merchant guilds and trade unions, which wielded a most powerful weapon in their hands by controlling the city governments or the magistracy. Competition in business and trade were deliberately disguised beneath the cloak of religion for the purpose of inciting the passions of the mob against the Jews. The Christian merchants and tradesmen found an enthusiastic ally in the Catholic clergy. The seeds sown by the Jesuits yielded a rich harvest. Religious intolerance, hypocrisy, and superstition had taken deep root in the Polish people. Religious persecution directed against all infidels, be they Christian dissidents or Jews, who stubbornly cling to irreligion, was one of the mainsprings of the inner politics of Poland during its period of decay. The enactment of the Catholic synods are permeated by malign hatred of the Jews, savoring of the spirit of the Middle Ages. The Synod of Lovich, which held in 1720, passed the resolution that the Jews should nowhere there build a new synagogues or repair old ones, so that the Jewish houses of worship might disappear in the course of time, either from decay or through fire. The Synod of 1733, held in Plotsk, repeats the medieval maxim that the only reason for tolerating the Jews in a Christian country is that they might serve as a reminder of the tortures of Christ and by their enslaved and miserable position as an example of the just chastisement inflicted by God upon the infidels. End of section 10